0: Today, I wanna talk a little bit about a couple of main characters in the Christmas narrative that just don't get the same kind of run as some of the others. So everybody knows about Mary and Joseph. Everybody knows about the shepherds. Everybody knows about the wise men. Everybody knows about all these other characters in the gospel story. Uh, Very little people know the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And the reason I want to talk about Zechariah and Elizabeth is that we have at the story been talking about cynicism and wonder as competing interests in our hearts. All of us face the struggle of cynicism versus wonder and awe. And Zechariah and Elizabeth were the kinds of people who had every excuse, every reason to give in to cynicism and be cynical. They were the kind of people that you would look at and go, man, those are good people. I wonder why life's been so hard on them. Life just doesn't seem fair. Y'all know the kind of person I'm talking about, right? So you know someone like this. Or maybe you are the person other people look at and go, I just don't understand it. I don't know why God would let this happen. That's a good person right there. And bad things happen all the time to them. So somebody that, you know the scenarios, somebody that has chronic illness or chronic pain or somebody that, uh, you know, like like Zechariah and Elizabeth were were, um, infertile. Or somebody that struggles on the dating scene and just stays single forever or some, you know, all kinds of trials that come their way and you just look at them and you go, this is not fair. Life's not fair, right? So I think that's the kind of people we're dealing with when we talk about Zechariah and Elizabeth. But these two people, even though we don't talk about them very much, they were the parents of John the Baptist, who was Jesus's sort of right-hand man. They were in cahoots, they were partners in crime and not to mention cousins um, in Jesus's ministry. So uh, we're going to learn a little bit about them today, and uh, as we do, I want you to look for the ways in which their story might intersect with yours. I just want to read their story to you real quick. It's from the Gospel of Luke. Um, In the New Testament, if you're not familiar, there are four biographies of Jesus. We call them Gospels, and the third one is Luke and uh, they all have a little different approach to the telling the Jesus story. But Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25 is where we find the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. So you can read along on the screen, or if you happen to have a Bible, uh, that's great. You can turn in your Bible as well um, as I read. If you don't have a Bible to your name, or if you don't know where it is, there's no shame in that game. You're not alone, I'm sure. We'll give you one. Before you leave today, just go by the connect table and we'll give you a Bible, no strings attached. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. In the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. So there's 24 priestly divisions, FYI, in the Israelite community. Abijah was one of them. And then his wife, Elizabeth, was a descendant of Aaron, so she belonged to another one, another uh, priestly division. So they were both from priestly lineage, which means they were both, uh, their families were considered godly. Uh, and responsible for the religious life of the community. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was unable to, was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. Once uh, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, so that means in the temple, every division of the priests would serve in the the temple in Jerusalem, two weeks a year, and this was his turn, and he was chosen by lot, it's a casting of lots, it's like drawing straws, he was chosen by lot, his lot was chosen, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord, so into the Holy of Holies, the most sacred space an Israelite man could enter into, he was chosen for the first and only time in his life to go in and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, "'Don't be afraid, Zechariah. "'Your prayer's been heard. "'Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, "'and you are to call him John. "'He will be a joy and delight to you, "'and many will rejoice because of his birth, "'for he will be great in the sight of the Lord.' That's a, that's a gutsy response right there. Uh, <laughs> it takes an old man to say something like that to an angel. How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them, angel wings or something, I don't know, but (laughs) remained unable to speak. And when his time of service was complete, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. And that last line really matters because to understand Zechariah and Elizabeth's story is to understand their struggle and their struggle was all bound up in infertility. And I always say an extra prayer and try to be a little more thoughtful toward couples that struggle with infertility around this time of year. Because all year long, the pressure is there. People struggling with infertility, couples, especially as time goes on, the awkward questions never go away. Your parents never stop saying, so have you tried this? Or like, you know, everyone just keeps asking how many kids you have. You know, and and, and every time it's like the knife just turns inside of you and then, you know, you find yourself getting jealous and envious of other couples that have kids and you start feeling things toward them you don't want to feel and then you feel guilty and ashamed of feeling those things. It's just an awful cycle Today. Right? It was way worse then. Today, at least there's other remedies. If it goes on for too long or a couple chooses either not to have kids, that's more socially acceptable today than it was then. Or a couple can choose adoption. And that's in most of this culture's eyes. I think that's every bit as treasured as a biological child is, an adopted child. Right. So, so it's a little different today, although it's still incredibly difficult today. In Zechariah and Elizabeth's time, this was basically the worst thing that could happen to a Jewish couple in the first century. The worst thing. It would be better to die an untimely death at a young age than to grow old without children. Because it meant you were somehow cursed, forgotten. Maybe people would say that Elizabeth had done something wrong and that's why God is keeping her from bearing children. And so Elizabeth and Zechariah, if you can just imagine their daily life and how infertility affects a couple socially, but also just between the two of them, the ways infertility over the years will tear a couple apart, especially in their their intimate life together, like it's just, it's a tough road to hoe. So you would look at someone like Zechariah and Elizabeth and you would say it's not fair because the Bible itself, Right before they, it tells us that they're childless, it says they were blameless. They're good people. It doesn't mean they were without sin. It just means they're salt of the earth, God-fearing people who do the right thing, right? So they're the people that if, if the store gives them too much change back, like they're like, oh, you, you, you gave me too much. You know, like that's the kind of people we're dealing with. They do the right thing. And they've done the right thing their whole life and now they're old and barren. And that word infertility, It's a a vicious word. If you really think about it, we just kind of say it without thinking, but infertility means literally fruitless. And so you have to wonder how many times Zechariah and Elizabeth looked at each other and wondered in their thoughts if their marriage had become a fruitless endeavor. They'd invested themselves in this marriage that was dying on the vine as they grew old. So I want you to, try and picture these people as I tell the rest of the story. Zechariah was a priest, Uh, so I guess a Jewish version of a a preacher in the first century. Zechariah dedicated his life to serving God. It was in his blood. It was was a generational thing, and Zechariah was a a priest who uh, served in the uh, priestly division of Abijah, Uh, gave himself uh, as a lifelong service, And, and this occasion of serving in the temple twice a year lended itself to this extra special once-in-a-lifetime opportunity of having your lot lot chosen by that Vegas-style game they would play. And and if your lot was chosen, then you got to go in and, and serve the highest honor possible of lighting the incense in the Holy of Holies. And that was a room only the one who gets to light the incense had ever seen. Zechariah had grown old, not only waiting for a child, but also waiting for this opportunity. He had been watching year after year as priests younger than him had their lots chosen, just like, really, God? Like, not even this? And finally, his time comes, and he gets to go in for the first time to the Holy of Holies. And I got to think, as he went into that room, like that feeling came over him where you walk into a space that overwhelms you you know the feeling like you walk into a space for the first time like i remember when i was like six or seven i walked into the astrodome for the first time and you just get dizzy you know it's like whoa like where am i i gotta think that's the feeling that come that came over zechariah as he walked into the holy of holies and, and that feeling was exacerbated by the reality of walking in and realizing he's not alone like that's the only thing he was supposed to be in that room was alone like he's the only one allowed in there there's another man standing in there and And this man is a fearsome thing to behold, apparently. It's the angel, Gabriel. If there's anything that we have misunderstood in our renderings and art of biblical characters, it's probably angels. Because the first thing an angel says every time he appears in the Bible You say, hey, don't be scared, don't be scared. Like, that's, it's it's not what we think. It's not a chubby little naked baby with cute wings. Like, if you saw that, fear would not be your response, I don't think, unless you had a weird thing about babies. I don't know, but like, (laughs) but probably not. These angels were fearsome creatures to behold. They're always saying, do not fear, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't run away. And so that's what Gabriel says to Zechariah, don't be afraid, and then he drops this good news on him, about the baby that is to come, what his name will be, what his purpose will be, and what his relationship to the Messiah will be. And Zechariah, who, I don't know, in his old age, maybe he's gotten his hopes dashed one too many times. Maybe they've had a false alarm pregnancy one too many times over the years. Maybe he's gotten excited, only to be devastated too many times. And so his knee-jerk reaction is to be skeptical. And who can blame him, given the circumstances? Who can blame him? So he says to the angel Gabriel, uh, how am I supposed to know this is true? I need some proof, which, word to the wise, if Gabriel ever appears to you and tells you something's going to happen like that. This probably shouldn't be your response because apparently it's a sin to question the angel Gabriel to his face. Wait till he goes away to question. But he questions the angel Gabriel to his face and Gabriel is offended and he says, I will take away your voice until these promises come to pass, which is, you know, maybe the second worst thing that can happen to a man like Zechariah. He's a preacher. He needs his voice. What am I worth if I don't have a voice? It's all I do is talk, right, as a preacher. And so he takes his voice away and... And then he goes and Zechariah takes some time inside the temple and tries to figure out what happened. Then he finally comes out and the people are like, whoa, what happened? That took way too long. You know, he was an old man. Maybe they thought he just killed over and died in there. And like, what do we do now? Who goes in? Like, you know, all kinds of, all kinds of questions arose. And he finally comes out and he can't speak. He tries to explain what happened. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how you explain an angel, but that's what I would do. It's like a chicken, unfortunately. But anyway, that's, who knows? They probably could have just given him a pen and paper and he would have wrote it down, but nobody thought of that. And so he tried to explain it with motions, and nobody understood what he was saying. And so when his time of service was over, he just went home to Elizabeth. He gets home to Elizabeth, who's there waiting for him, and he tries to explain to her what he saw inside the temple. But again, he has no voice. So he does this again and he does this again. She's like, you think I'm an angel, You know, I don't know. I don't know. You want to hold me? I I, I don't know what she thought, but there's something that happened. It's in the subtext of the passage. There's something that happened. Read between the lines because these are two very old people, but something changes in Elizabeth's heart because she suddenly finds her husband irresistible. (laughs) Elizabeth, in all her years, has never known what it's like to be held by the strong, silent type. Because she's been married to a preacher. We're the loud, insecure type. And so she likes this version of her husband, apparently, because she takes him to the bedroom after this, apparently, because nine months later, John's here. Now, can you imagine poor old Zechariah? This is the w- weirdest day of his life. Like, <laughs> he's got Gabriel, and then he's got his wife who suddenly really wants him, you know, after I mean, who knows how long. And then, and then she's pregnant. She's pregnant with John, who is the forerunner of our faith, who was Jesus' partner in ministry. Now, here's what I'll say, and then I'll, I'll, I'll be quiet. I'll try to be quiet. The insidious thing about how cynicism works in all of our lives is that when you give into it, it has the power to become a self fulfilling prophecy. And this is what I mean, this is what happens. Cynicism is the result of the absence of hope. And so when you decide there's no hope, hope of change, hope of for you changing, hope for others changing, hope for the world changing, and you just assume you should expect the worst out of life in general. And so you take that hope you used to have and you remove it. Cynicism naturally fills that void inside of you. And when that happens, you uh, begin to miss the opportunities and occasions and events and experiences that would have reinforced the hope that you've lost, but because you've lost it, you begin to say whatever to those things, to those opportunities, whatever, no thanks, I'll stay home, doesn't matter, won't make a difference, you go ahead. And then other people go ahead and good things happen to them. And so you're still at home going, see, I told you nothing good ever happens to me. You know, and so you said it and then you let the opportunity go. And then nothing good happened and you get to say you were right. And this is how cynicism works. And every time you're right, you go a little deeper into it. Because even when you're cynical, being right feels good. Imagine... If, and nobody could blame them for this, imagine if Zechariah and Elizabeth had been so worn down by their life of disappointment, by everybody's questions and their own doubts to the point of being cynical. Imagine if Zechariah had just hung up his stole and said, I can't serve this God anymore. He doesn't listen to my prayers. Imagine if Zechariah never made it to the temple with his priestly division because whatever, who cares? What difference will it make? Imagine if he didn't enter his lot into the game of lot casting so that it could never be drawn because whatever, nothing good ever happens to me. Imagine if Zechariah and Elizabeth had turned on each other over the years because they were so resentful, so full of regret that they just turned on the closest person they could. It was each other. And he started treating her like dirt. She started treating him like dirt. And instead of kissing him on the way out the door to the temple, she wasn't even home when he left. And she wasn't even there when he got back because she doesn't really care about him because he's treated her that way. And imagine if cynicism took over their hearts. Imagine the experience they would have missed out on. God would have found a way to deliver John somehow without them. But what experience would they have missed out on? the experience that reinforced the hope that they lost. Listen, cynicism is always a choice. To live without hope is always a choice. Just like joy, as we talked about last week, is not based on your circumstances. Neither is cynicism. There are people with worse circumstances than you that have lived with more joy than you. Right, Because being joyful is a choice. Being cynical is a choice. It's not based on how good or bad things are right now. Uh, I have over the last 20 years, this is crazy, but I've, I've been a pastor for 20 years now and, and uh, I've been a Christian for almost six of those. So y'all can do the math on it. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'll tell you that story another time. Um, but the, the truth is I've always tried to help people who struggle. And in the past, I helped all kinds of other people. Gio and I would help uh, immigrants in Kansas City. We helped homeless people. We served meals and all this social service stuff. And we helped urban youth uh, find a way to college. And, and man, before God really took the throne in my life, before I really relinquished control to God, it was just me with my two hands trying to change the world. And would you, would you believe it if I told you that the world would not cooperate with my plans for it? Like, people, that are homeless, like they didn't understand that I had the answers to their homelessness if they would just listen to me. And they just refuse, they continue to go back and repeat the same mistakes and walk down the same paths. And I got more and more cynical because I couldn't change people the way I wanted to. Surrendering to God's will for my life changed all that now and it's all different. I still work every day with people who struggle. Y'all's struggles are a little different than the people I've worked with in the past but they're not necessarily better struggles. Problems are problems and people are people. Whether you're homeless or whether you are an immigrant or whether like some of you you're just overwhelmed with self-imposed high expectations and you're driven into the shadows of your despair and depression because heaven forbid anybody know you're not okay and so you put on the mask and you just continue to dig a deeper hole even people who are so privileged in this life that they've been given everything they're the people you look at and go man they got dealt a good hand even those people who've been dealt a good hand carry the burden of having been dealt a good hand so they can't make mistakes. There's no grace for someone who's been given everything, you understand? We envy these people sometimes, but the burden of having been given everything is enormous and immense, and it drives people further into their despair, and in some cases, their addictions, unhealthy attachments, broken relationships. We've all got our reasons to be cynical. We all have a choice to make every day to follow that lazy, often thoughtless path down into our cynical place, or to follow Zechariah to the temple, to serve a God whose answers he did not always like or agree with or appreciate, to love his wife even though life had been hard and unfruitful in some ways, to hold on to that single thread of hope when others might let go. And when you hold on to that single thread of hope because joy is the ground you stand on and not some meaningless fleeting chase of happiness, but joy is the ground you stand on, the joy of God, you hold on to hope and you begin to show others In your life, how to hold on to hope too. As a way of closing his famous letter to the Romans, Paul said, may the God of hope, this is Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Listen, even if this world takes everything from you, even if your hopes and dreams don't come to pass the way you thought they would or in the timeline you imagined that they would, even if life isn't as you imagined it would be, and you feel at times, at your worst times, when you're lost and exhausted and others are doing things you wish you could be doing and having things you wish you could have, Even when those dark feelings creep in, if you hang on to that thread of hope, it is all you need. That thread of hope is your belief that if God is real, then he really comes through. Every time. If God is real, there are no coincidences. If God is real, there is no purposeless life. If God is real, he does not leave you dangling or twisting in the wind. If God is real, he comes through for you. And regardless of how dark it may seem, you hold on because he's done it before and he'll do it again. And so you follow Zechariah. You follow Elizabeth. And you walk in the footsteps of hope. I know it's easier sometimes to cave to cynicism, but as Paul says... Closing his letter to Romans, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. If God is real, he really comes through. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for the hope you give us. God, help us even when all seems lost and we feel like And nothing matters. And it would just be easier to throw up our hands and say, whatever. Help us to see what a trap that is. And to live faithfully, hopefully, for you. God, I pray for each person here, especially those who are really struggling mightily this Christmas season. Maybe they've experienced a loss this year and this is their first Christmas without somebody dear to them. Maybe there are couples struggling with infertility like Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they don't know what to do. And they're tired of answering people's questions and dealing with the awkward shame of it. Maybe someone's facing the loss of a job combined with the expenses and the pressures of Christmas. Maybe there's just uncertainty about marriage in the room right now. Or uncertainty about relationships and dating that lead to frustration and self-loathing and God I pray for those that are just on the brink at the tipping point of hope and cynicism give us some perspective in those moments God to step back and cling to hope because you are God and we are not and it's never been up to these two hands or any of us to make the world what it should be. But if your plan is for the salvation of the whole world in Christ, if your plan is to extend grace to anyone who would receive it, we trust that plan. Redeem and restore us, Lord, to your salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.